0: You have a copy of God's word? Could you turn, please, in the scriptures to Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14.. I'm not sure I've chosen that hymn the entire time I've been here, but I couldn't get away from it in light of the passage that is before us. It's easy to sing. I Surrender All, and the worry we have sometimes when we choose hymns like that is, are we, are we calling the congregation, am I calling the congregation to sing a lie? Are there people that are unsurrendered, as it were, and they're just reflecting an empty expression? Well, certainly that's always a challenge. And the passage before us tonight only compounds that issue. And in the providence of God, as we think of the licensing of, of Logan, and of course this is, this is not the same as the farewell we had for, for the Kellys, just so you're clear, uh, if in God's providence he sees fit to have a congregation gather around Logan and see him as... Uh, the man that they would desire and be united in that, then uh, he will receive that call. And upon his acceptance then, uh, we will we will bid our farewell. But that's another step. And so if that comes, then that will be another event. But this is something that usually is done the week of our presbytery, either in May or in October. Uh, but just again, because of the uh, the fact that we weren't able to go to Canada, many of us, Uh, It was felt just to do it here on this occasion in your presence, and we trust that uh, the Lord will be in it just the same. Luke chapter 14 is where we are, and we're going to commence at the portion that we want to look at tonight. It's the the last portion of the chapter from verse 25, perhaps a well-known passage, but uh, one that is evergreen in its relevance to our hearts. Luke 14, verse 25, And there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple." And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savour, savour, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. And may that prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ be fulfilled here. May we have ears to hear His Word. Let's pray. Seek the Lord with us tonight, beloved, as we look to His Word. God, give us help in Thy Word. We pray for understanding, and we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. Please, Lord, I can't can't preach. I mean, I can say words, and I can convey truth and thoughts, but we pray for a message from God. Lord, it seems very appropriate that we should come to a passage like this, given what will follow the preaching It is the great need that there be more young men and young women that hear the words of Christ in this way, to this degree. So God, we pray, give us help, and may it be used of Thee in ways that far exceed what we can ask or think. So help us bring a hush and a sense of Thy presence in our midst, and give us a real sense that God is speaking to us through His infallible, inerrant Word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're obviously approaching the end of October, and in light of that, our minds begin to be drawn to the Reformation. We will have our our Reformation weekend weekend in which we will um, have certain themes that relate to the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. But upon thinking about it this past week, my mind was drawn, and I, I don't know where exactly this came from, but, it, you know, sometimes just things come into your head. And I was thinking about the, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre that happened in France in 1572, and just realizing that this year, though it happened in August, of course, this, this year marks the 450th anniversary since that tragic event. As I come to this passage, my mind is thinking about how relevant that is these were Christians living in France that had forsaken popery, had forsaken the Roman Catholic system, and had given their allegiance to the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were, they were, they were moving along with the, the, the power and the influence of the Protestant Reformation in that age. So you're thinking about, about Luther dying in 1546, you're thinking about Calvin dying in 1564, we're coming to 1572, the, the Reformation is well under way throughout the nations of Europe. By this stage already, Scotland, 1560, has declared itself to be Protestant. We're in the year, in fact, it's very close to the, the death of John Knox in 1572, later on in that year. So you have all these huge figures at that time. And many nations are being transformed. And the gospel is penetrating. And it's penetrating at the highest levels, as well as the lowest levels of society. And I mean that respectfully. People even of great influence and power are coming under the sway and influence of the gospel, and that was true in France. Some of those powerful figures in France had given their allegiance to the gospel and had come out publicly calling themselves Protestants, and they're beginning to move in the direction of endeavoring to make France a Protestant kingdom to feel the influence of Geneva flowing into France and to follow in the footsteps of seeing the need of Christ's Word to govern at every level of society. And many were being impacted. Many were being influenced. Of course, there was great opposition. Roman Catholics of of opposition and position were were seeing it. In fact, through the 1560s, you have a number of wars that take place between Protestants and, and Roman Catholics. And there's a period of peace, but it's not real peace. There's a real sense of, of the constant pressure of the Protestant movement upon the status quo. And whenever the, the king's sister marries a Protestant, it becomes the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, as it were. And the king is, by other influences and powerful figures, he is encouraged to send the royal guard and kill the Protestants that were in Paris at that time so on the eve of St. Bartholomew's day, they were sent out that night throughout the rest of the day, and they were were killing Protestants all throughout Paris, especially the significant figures, the nobles, the people of power and and wealth and influence and landowners. These were the people that were targeted. But the, the mobs of the Catholic populace gathered around the The guard, the Roman guard, they they saw this as their chance to to quash and quell the Protestant movement. And so things got out of hand. The mob went after every Protestant they knew in their area. Thousands were killed in Paris. And thousands were killed outside of Paris. And went on for days and days as they slew innocent Protestant people. Simply because they were Protestant. And rejected Popery. And gave their allegiance to Christ. It's an awful dark part of France's history and in many ways is a pivotal point that changed the direction of the nation. France didn't come under the full sway and influence of Protestant doctrine the way other nations did, partly because of the massacre of Protestants on that day. And God was seen so fit to bless much of the rest of the world as as Protestants of influence and power and intellect moved away from France, went to other nations, and brought the prosperity that they were already bringing in their own country, brought the same prosperity to the places where they would eventually settle. It's a sad day, but it is not uncommon. And the passage before us is a reminder that to follow Christ May cost you more than you ever imagined. There is an increasing animosity against Christianity today. We were discussing on Friday night, a remark was made, very pertinent, Mark, very on point, Mark, that our observation that, that Christians are going to have to save science from the atheists. And as that remark was made, my mind was immediately drawn to all the gender stuff that's going on right now. We already are endeavoring and having to save science from the atheists who deny even the most elementary Biology 101. We are standing for God in every generation. And should things get worse, there may come even more pressure. More sacrifice, more cost to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I was looking back over this chapter, this entire chapter, I often do that when I come near the end. I start looking back and seeing the themes and the the kind of continuity through the portion. And I've already said this, that we're in a section of discipleship, but you see it back over this chapter. The opening six verses, just bear with me for a moment if you would the opening six verses, we we learn that a true disciple labors to serve God at all times. This is exemplified in Christ when he, he, He knows the trap is set on the Sabbath day. He knows the intent to which it has all been arranged. But He will not refuse to do good, even though it's going to cost Him. Even though the setup is to try and condemn Him and mark Him as one that cannot be trusted. The call to do what's right is a call that is always upon us. And Christ is prepared to pay that sacrifice and exemplifies the heart of any true disciple of His. Verses 7 through 11. A true disciple labors not to promote himself. You have this as he marked how they chose out the chief rooms and so on. And he addresses that. If you're going to be a disciple of mine, the implication is if you're mine, you'll not be like that. You're not trying to self-promote. It's not about you. The cause is bigger than you. Verses 12 through 14, a true disciple labors not for earthly reward. These were people who were being hospitable to those who could reciprocate the same. Those who follow Him, those who are true disciples, often serve with no promise of reward or reciprocity. They labor anyway, do what's right, even though there may be nothing that is given in this life in return. In verses 15 through 24, That we considered last time, a true disciple labors among all types of people to fill the master's house, and again you have that great supper where they're sent and they keep on being sent out to to pull them all in. There is there is no sense of, of of partiality in the heart of the true disciple of Christ. They go to all and tell them the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what also struck me, as I reflected upon all of this coming into our portion tonight, is that on face value, the, great, the, the, the parable of the Great Supper that precedes our portion tonight, where the Master keeps sending the servant out to gather in everyone and anyone to come into the Great Supper, is that on face value it could be used to argue for a kind of presentation of the gospel that would make it as easy as possible for people to come in. The goal, if it's seen this way, the goal is to get the house filled. And the pragmatic mind could say, well then let's make it as easy as possible to fill the house. Let's tell people of all the benefits and not warn them about the things that it might cost them. And Christ then moves straight in by the governance of the Spirit of God. We are brought then to Christ presenting the message in a way that far, moves far away from any idea that we present an easy believism gospel. His example of going into the highways and hedges, his example of going anywhere to preach the word, includes warning making people informed about the fact that to follow me may cost you far more than you have ever weighed up. So he is exemplifying it. You see it in verse 25. There went great multitudes with him. Thousands are gathering. Maybe, maybe in part because of what had happened in the Pharisees' home and the spread of the the, what, how Christ addressed them and all that transpired in the preceding verses. But with the thousands, great multitudes, the thousands that surround him on this occasion, he turns and he speaks. And what I want to lay before you tonight is Christ's demands upon his disciples, Christ's demands upon his disciples. If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, there are certain demands. And this passage is not some kind of hidden part of a contract that you're not sure. I'm not sure whether I I didn't sign up for this. Christ is not hiding it. It's up front. It's visible. He needs you to know what it means to follow Him. First, A resignation when embracing Christ. There is a resignation when embracing Christ. Verse 26. If any man come to me... Now again, let me just stop there. There you see the free offer. You see the willingness of Christ. He is not saying you're not welcome. He is opening his arms. He's saying, if any man... I don't care where you come from. I don't care who you are. I don't care about your background. doesn't matter. You come to me, but here, here's what's required. And there won't be any differences made based upon your wealth or position. It doesn't matter who you are. It's open to all, but the same, the same will be put before you. If any man come to me, and there's, there's, there's the point underlying the that coming to me, you're coming to Christ, you're embracing Christ. That's what we mean, coming to Christ is to embrace Christ. It is to believe in Jesus Christ. And what does he say about those that will come to him? What must they resign to? First, they must love him more than others. They must love him more than others. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, you read that and you think, hang on a minute. Doesn't the Bible say that we are to love and honor our parents, husbands, husbands, Love your wives? Doesn't it expect love from parents to their children? Of course it does. So, how do we understand the language here where he says, you must hate, though it's put in the negative, but you must hate father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters? I think one of the most helpful ways to understand this is to go to Genesis 29, Genesis chapter 29. Here we're brought to the life of of Jacob. And the remark that is made concerning his two wives, Rachel and Leah. Genesis 29, verse 30. He went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah. And served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So I want you to see what's being said here, that he loved Rachel more than Leah, and the Lord saw that Leah was hated. The sense is degree. 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 It's not how we often use the word hate, although the Bible does use it in that way also. But the hate here is not that kind of narrow understanding. It is the fact that there is a degree, and one is preferred above the other. And our Lord Jesus Christ is saying the same thing in this passage. That there can be no challenger, there can be no one ahead of Him, in the love that any of His disciples possess. Is a disciple of His to love their father? Yes. Mother? Yes. Wife? Yes. Children? Yes. Brethren and sisters? Yes. And it shows you too that the the disciples of Christ are made up of a whole kind of gamut of people. All sorts of people of all sorts of relationships. But He demands priority in love. He will not accept a second place or below. So yes, we are to love our neighbors. We are to love our parents. We are to love our family members and so on. But, but Christ is saying, if you're going to be a disciple of my, if any man, it's open to you. It's open to you. But if you're going to be my disciple, you have to be given entirely in your allegiance to me. It doesn't work if you don't do that. Think of it this way. And this is a very poor analogy, but it may help drive home the point. Imagine you're trying to be skilled in some area, some trade or some craft. And you have the opportunity to work with the world's most renowned person in that craft. I don't care what it is. It could be music. It could be art. It could be photography. It could be business. It could be anything at all and you have an opportunity to become, to become a disciple of the best in the world, and you have an internship, or you have an opportunity to work alongside them, you would feel, I trust, immensely privileged. But it will not work. It will not work. If you go into that relationship, and you're dictating how it should be. You're saying to the master who's globally renowned, I disagree at every point. And you're suggesting a better way or an improved way. Now, of course, there may be times, because we're dealing here in what I'm expressing, with, with men, and all men are fallible. And there are often students that are disciples of the greatest in the world, and, and they are better. They are they are. They're more, they are more. They have greater capability and they're going to advance and far exceed those that teach them. That happens at times. But you get the point. Even there, if he is going to actually learn in that privileged position he's received, he must submit to the instruction. He must submit to the superiority and he must submit to the will of the one that is teaching and instructing. That, as I say, is... A poor analogy, but I think it drives home the point. If you're coming to be a disciple of Christ, your will must be entirely resigned to Him. And your love and affection must be predominantly towards Him. You don't get to have some secondary relationship where you set Christ aside and substitute Him with others. You have to love Him more than others. So when you embrace Christ, look at it. If any man come to me, if you're going to come to me, if you're going to embrace me, you have to embrace this. It must, it must look like this. Or at the end of the verse, you see it, he cannot be my disciple. Cannot be. So to love him more than others. If you're going to embrace Christ, there's this resignation to love him more than others but also to love him more than self. It says in verse 26, and his own life also. Now, this is exceedingly difficult because it is impossible for you to hate yourself. Now, I know that there's language of self-hate, and I, I, I get it and I understand the context. And there's certainly... A form of expression that looks like self, what they call self loathing or other aspects of that kind of treatment or view of self. It's not the time to get into that right now, but it doesn't, it doesn't in any way mean that man can actually, really, truly hate himself. Ephesians 5.29 says clearly that no man ever yet hated his own flesh. No man ever yet hated his own flesh. You defend yourself. You argue the case for yourself. You feed yourself. You look after yourself. There's a concern. Even someone who has poor or unhealthy image of themselves does not actually hate Themselves, No man ever yet hated his own flesh. The reality is we tend to defend ourselves. We are our own primary advocates. <laughs> and we are always advocating for ourselves. And so we have all sorts of particular, let's say, challenges about self. And that's why Christ includes this. The problem of putting Christ in second place is not just a threat that comes from without. It's a threat that exists within the heart. There is a temptation within you to exalt yourself over Christ as well. And that he will not tolerate. Tozer, in his classic work, The Pursuit of God, he talks about the self-sins. And he says, to be specific, the self-sins are these, self-righteousness, self-pity, Self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, and a host of others like them. Self-sins, we all have them, they exist. And Christ is saying, you can't let it exist freely in your heart, or you cannot be my disciple. Again, Tolles are speaking about the self-sins in the same context and area in his book. He said, it is the veil of our fleshly fallen nature living on unjudged within us, uncrucified and unrepudiated. It is the close woven veil of the self-life which we have never truly acknowledged, of which we have been secretly ashamed, and which for these reasons we have never brought to the judgment of the cross. He's saying there's this inner life an inner life, and it exists. And because it is not immediately obvious, and because the fruit of it often is not immediately apparent, we don't crucify it. We don't kill it. It does produce bad fruit. And the one fruit that Christ will not tolerate is a fruit where it exalts self over. Um, He says, you do that, you cannot be my disciple. Now, I'm looking down on you, fair and fine folk, and I I love you with all my heart. And there's a part of me that looks at this and says, soften it, preacher, soften it. Don't make it so black and white. These people don't need to hear language like this. But I know, I know, I know all of you, certainly the vast majority of you would not want that. You want the words of Jesus Christ. And I can't, we, we can't move away from texts like this and just, let's say, kind of skim over the surface of it so that we don't feel the impact of it. The language of verse 26 ought to cause us to look deeply within our souls and honestly assess, have I ever been there? That is, has Christ ever mattered more to me than anyone else on earth? And has Christ ever mattered more to me than my very self? And then ask, is it still true today? There is a resignation when embracing Christ. He wants people to come to Him. The Great Supper evidently expresses that. Fill the house. Bring them all in, if any man. But don't think lightly. Don't imagine you can come in and play some kind of game, some religious game, where you get to assign yourself the title Christian, but you know nothing of what it costs. There is, secondly, a demonstration as they follow Christ. There's a resignation when embracing Christ. There's a demonstration as they follow Christ. Verse 27, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see the repetition of terms. You see how this is the point, verse, verse 26, disciple, verse 27, disciple, verse 33, cannot be my disciple. This is the point. This is the point, making sure you know what it means to be a disciple. So we are those then, if we have come to Jesus Christ, we, we come to Him and then, verse 27, come after Him. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me. We come to him, and then we come after him. We follow him. We embrace him, and we follow him. There's a Christian life. Embrace Christ, follow Christ. Those words are... They go deeper than often we care to ponder. What does it mean to embrace Christ. What what does it mean then to follow Christ? What's involved in this? The Apostle Paul understood what it meant to embrace Christ and then how that would work itself out. I was thinking about two verses that are very pertinent in relation to following Christ, especially in light of, look at what it says, "...whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me." Bear his cross and come after me. So, We embrace Him, and then we follow Him, but we follow Him with the cross. I was thinking about how, in the embracing of Him, it gets expressed by Paul very helpfully in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a summary of justifying grace. That's a summary of what it means to be a Christian. And in being a Christian, there's a recognition. I am crucified. I can't embrace him without embracing with him my union. I am coming into union with him, which means I die on that cross. I am dead. There is no more me. But I'm still here. I'm still alive. And what does it look like then to follow Him? What does it mean to to bear His cross and come after Him? And my mind then goes to the end of Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, That's how He follows. That's how He continues. I don't want the glory in anything save the cross. My whole world, my whole world is governed by a crucified Redeemer. And His love for me. And so we follow Christ, not, not, a, not through a bed of roses, but bearing a cross. We're on a path of death. We die, and we stay on a path of death and also a path of life. But we are dead. We are not trying to glory in ourselves. We are not trying to advance ourselves. Let's develop this a little more, the demonstration, as they follow him. First, the cross that they preach. They are preaching this, aren't they? They are bearing the cross and a- coming after him. So, so, so part of that is what they preach, what they express. And so as they come after Jesus Christ, they're bearing the cross. They they are preaching the cross. The mark of the cross is upon their life. You can't meet this kind of disciple without realizing they are a Christian. They're a follower of Jesus Christ. You you can't meet them. The the cross governs their whole perspective. It rules and governs in all of their life what gets them up in the morning, what motivates them to live as they live, to speak as they speak, to decide as they decide, to enter into relationships as they enter into relationships, to go for jobs that they go for. Everything the cross is governing. They're preaching the cross. And to the world, to the Jew, it's a stumbling block, like we said this morning. It cannot be. To the Greek, it's foolishness. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. But to the Christian, it makes perfect sense. They realize that this, this is the way to truly live. And that's what they're after, isn't it? That's ultimately what you're after. You're after meaning and significance. Which is how the passage ends. About salt being good. If the salt have lost its savor, wherewith it shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. It doesn't serve purpose. You want purpose. This is it. You want to know the way to live your life. This is it. And the world looks on and says, not for me. Life's about me. It's so short. Let me enjoy it while it lasts and do my own thing. And Jesus would say, yes, yes, I want you to enjoy it. He wants us to enjoy it. But in a way that may not be obvious at first glance. So the cross they preach, all they do is they live, they bear His cross and come after Him. There's a cross they practice. In bearing this cross all the time, they are practicing what it means to be aligned with Christ and His cross. And so they don't, they don't practice things the way the world practices things. They're very different. You, you remember, I use this just as one example. In times of suffering and affliction, in times when things don't go as you may have planned, when you're trying to resolve the events of your life, I'm trying to figure out why you may feel persecuted or you may suffer. First Peter has a host of instruction here, but I, I read to you just chapter 4, verse 14, following, when Peter says, this is this is how you live, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, you're walking through life bearing a cross. You are not like other people. And you're an offense to other people. You're an offense to them. You're an offense to their self-righteousness because you're saying, you can't save yourself. There's only one way. And you're offense to their sense of personal freedom because you have tied yourself in allegiance to the will of another. So when the trials come, as the world militates, as it it, hated Christ, so it will hate you. That was his warning to his people. Don't think it strange. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. You know Paul, Paul talked about Paul talked about making up in the sufferings of Christ, and of course he's not saying there that he is adding to the finished work of Christ that's not the point. The point is this: that as Christ exercises his dominion in this world, there's a part of him that continues to suffer. his own victory on the cross is an emblem of how the whole kingdom advances. And he goes to the cross and he dies, and it appears to be the entire plan seems to be caving in, but it's not. It's being established. Victory is being won, as we thought of this morning. But he is so purposed in the advancement of his kingdom that there is an ongoing aspect of his sufferings through his body through His people, through you and through me. And it's through suffering then that He advances the cause. He continues to glorify His name. And so you're partakers of Christ's sufferings. That when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Oh, the Christian, the Christian, the the disciple of Jesus Christ, he lives for an audience of one. He is governed by this superior thought that it is only what the Lord thinks that matters. And I have said this many times. I have counseled people I don't know how many occasions, especially when they're feeling challenged and pressured and there's contention and difficulty. I have said to them, no matter what, have a conscience void of offense before God and man and just let the chips fall where they may. because our inner desire is to rise up in defense, to argue the case, to fight the cause, and certainly there can be occasion where that is necessary, but be very careful that that isn't the self-life that's rising up. Have a conscience void of offense before God and man. That is the most stable, peaceful place to stand. Such people sleep well. Thirdly, a contemplation before they trust Christ. Christ then presents this matter of con- contemplating and considering very carefully then what it means to be his disciple. And it kind of goes back to the, the, the point of, of of decision, as it were, where you are considering whether or not you are wanting to come in to this great supper and enjoy the benefits. And so he gives two illustrations of how important it is to, to give clear consideration. The first deals with building a tower. You have to f- sit down first and count the cost. Are you going to finish it? Are you able to actually see it through? Contemplate carefully To be a disciple of Christ is to be aware that you may be called to suffer far more, as I've said already, than you ever imagined. If a massacre comes, the like of which happened in France, or the killing times in Scotland in the late 1600s, or other occasions, even even what's happening in other parts of the world this very day. Have you counted the cost? Have you considered whether you will finish it? Verse 31 and 32, preparing for battle. Again, you think about what you're facing. You think about what it will mean. Are you a Muslim are you going to be cut off from your family? Are you going to be removed from your employment? Is your life going to be in danger because you have converted from the religion of your birth? That's what Iranians are facing right now. The mother faced for years. The gospel is advancing wonderfully there. Powerfully. And even all the recent uproars and all the protests. God is using this. I don't know if you're following it in the news, but he is using this. He is breaking the power of the regime. And the gospel is advancing. But it still is dangerous. Oh, if you're born Orthodox, born Roman Catholic, born an Assyrian Christian or whatever, you're fine. If You switch to Protestantism, Evangelical, that's fine. As far as they're concerned, you were born Protestant. You're born Christian, rather. But if you switch from Islam... Are you prepared to pay the price? The day may come. So what are we to do? We're to contemplate the forsaking required. Verse 33. We go to the end of it. So likewise, so likewise. Here's the point. Whosoever he be of you. Anyone. I'm not closing the door to any of you. Whosoever. Any of you, friends. Any of you want to be a disciple of Christ, you can be. But whosoever be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, you have to forsake all that you have. You don't get to give Christ a try. You don't get to return him when you think to yourself, it doesn't really fit my life. That isn't becoming a disciple. You have to be able to be prepared to forsake everything insofar as you understand at that point. Now, again, we will be called to things we did not officially sign up for, as it were, right? Some of you have known this. Many of you have known this. You have suffered in ways, as a believer, that you did not think would ever happen to you. You never imagined it. But you've been called to it. You have been called to it. Praise God, you're still going on. But when he is calling, when he is beckoning, he he is saying, insofar as you're aware, to the degree that you understand, I am asking you, I am laying on the line, it will cost you everything. Everything's a very general word. It doesn't begin to have punch until you get to the specifics. That's our problem. But we are to contemplate it. Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath. You have to surrender. All to Jesus I surrender. Your call to this. Christ demands that his disciples be prepared to give up anything that would ask them to compromise his will in their lives. So it may cost you family members. That's why you have to love him more. It may cost you your job. It may cost you all sorts of things. It may require that you suffer like Job being completely misunderstood. It may require that you stand alone like Noah. But all that you have, your reputation, your wealth, your relationships, your time, your ambition, whatever it is, you sign it over to Christ. You sign it over. You sign it over. So that when you, as you traverse your life and you're have your, your, very comfortable, though it has its challenges, but you have your job and you're going through it and you're quite content and he begins to put his finger on your life and say, no, I want you to preach the gospel. and You wrestle with it and then you resign yourself to it. You say, okay, I believe this is God's will. So you start preparing and as you prepare, then he begins to put his finger on another matter, he says, I want you to preach the gospel in the Middle East. And you start thinking about that and what that might mean. That means learning a language. Well, part of the Middle East. And he starts putting his finger on a particular area, a particular people group. And they're saying, this could cost me everything. And Christ's reply is, yes. That's what I told you. That is what I told you it could cost you. Say all to Jesus, I surrender. You forsake all. Contemplate the forsaking required. Contemplate the fellowship promised. It's not. It's not all bad, <laughs> and it's not. None of this is bad. It just it sounds kind of harsh against our carnal ways. But the whole point. The whole point of it, is verse seen there in verse thirty-three, as well as the other verses. It is to be His disciple is to be his disciple. I get to be his disciple? Yes. You get to be the disciple of the Son of God. You get to be the disciple of love incarnate. You get to be the disciple of the most significant character that ever entered the world. You get to be the disciple of the one who made the world and upholds the world and is going to bring the whole world to a close. You get to be on his side. You get to be standing behind him as he wages war against the curse and all of his enemies. You get to be on the pace of victory. You get to be his disciple. All the things that all the things that threaten you most. At the end of the day, what does it matter whether someone fires you from a job? Your sins are forgiven. You belong to him. You're his. And so it's fellowship. It's fellowship. And he's basically saying, "This, this relationship doesn't work unless you say goodbye to the things that threaten it. Now, we understand that, don't we? We understand that. It's what we do when we stand before a crowd of people and we exchange wedding vows. We are saying goodbye to every other option. It's gone. That's the only way it works. So Christian, are you prepared? Are you prepared? Have you, have you properly considered this? Or, or maybe tonight is, is a, an appointed, ordained refresher course, a crash course on things you know but you need refreshed. You need just to be reminded. He loves, He loves, He loves us, doesn't he? I mean I I love how this is sandwiched. I was thinking about this as well. You have this the Great Supper, right? Which is what? It's, what, it's God pursuing sinners. Go and get them, bring them all in. And then you go into the next chapter, and it's the same thing. Lost sheep, lost silver, lost sun. I'm after them. I want to save them. I want to take them and lay claim to them that they be mine. But in the middle of it, those who become his, those who are truly his, they they resign. They resign everything. They give it all up. They give it over. Let me go back. Let me go back as we close. Just ponder in your own heart, have I ever been right there, all on the altar, all given over to Jesus? And then ask yourself again, am I still there today? We're comfortable, aren't we? There are storm clouds looming over the West. They're gathering. They're darkening. They're threatening. And unless there's revival, a kind of 16th century outpouring of the Spirit of God, unless that happens, they're going to keep encroaching upon our existence. It's being governed by a force. As I said this morning, He knows no mercy. Are we ready? How have we counted the cost? May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. In just a moment, Reverend Wagner will come up here and lead in the licensing of Logan Elder. I want you to, to not lose sight of the message and what the Lord has said to your heart and to mine tonight. And if you need any counsel or help, please let me know before you leave tonight. Lord, bless thy word. It has been a word and season. I pray that this congregation would be set apart by the grace and help of God to be sold out, to truly know what it is and to live as disciples of thy Son. Hear us. Help us. Empower us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.